now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Our passage today is in Mark chapter 10, if you'd like to be turning to that. Chapter 10, verse 13 through 22. Our author is Mark, one of the four evangelists that wrote the first four books of the New Testament. Mark is a person that was converted. His mother was a sister to Barnabas, a prominent figure in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. John Mark is the one who went with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. And he got uh, very disillusioned as he traveled around. He'd been quite pampered as a young person and he didn't like the privation and he didn't like the uh, weight of the burden that he had to carry as a worker alongside of Paul. And uh, the Bible tells us that John Mark decided to abandon the cause of world missions and go back to Jerusalem where his mama was. And uh, the Bible said, so he departed. And uh, it left Paul and Barnabas, of course, a little short-handed, but God saved enough people to help them that they went on with ministry. People like uh, Silvanus and uh, Aphroditus and all of the guys that, Tychicus and all those guys that worked alongside of Paul, helping him write. Because as most of you know, he had a eye disease, and it was a running eye disease, and he couldn't see very well. And plus, he did most of his writing from prison, so he surely had a light problem in there. Uh, he was afflicted by a number of, of sicknesses and prayed that the Lord would heal him of it, and God never answered that prayer, and he quit praying about that when God just simply said, My grace is sufficient for you. And uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, uh, back in uh, the home base for sending out missionaries, John Mark came up to Paul and Barnabas when the council elected and selected them to go again on another missionary journey. And uh, John Mark said, I go also with thee. And Paul said, no, you're not going. You quit on me one time, you'll quit on me again. And said, uh, I'm not going to be foolish enough to put trust in you again. So as Gomer Powell says, get me once, shame on you. Get me twice, shame on me. So the Bible said the contention between them was so sharp that they parted ways asunder. And Paul selected Silas and Barnabas took John Mark and they went their different ways. And both of them did a fabulous work for God. Amen. Uh, something that Satan intended to be divisive and hurtful, the Lord turned into something good and profitable. And it's John Mark that wrote this book in your Bible called the book of Mark. And Mark is a person who is well acquainted with the works of the early church and all that they did in the early church, which is a great blessing to us. So Mark is not telling something that he personally saw himself. He's telling the stories as they're handed down to him by his elders. Those are called teledotes. For those of you who care about any theology, a teledote is a tradition that is handed down generation to generation. 
they didn't have digital recording back in those days and uh, didn't have a printing press. So a lot of the things that they just learned, they learned from sitting around the campfire at night and listening to their elders talk about things that uh, occurred in the Bible. Stories about Noah, stories about Job, stories about all the different characters, Elijah. And that was handed down generation to generation. And the danger of that is that if you miss one generation, you don't recall the story. The story is lost. And we know that in the book of Judges, the Bible said, there arose a generation that did not know Joseph and did not know God. And it brings to our mind this fact that we are one generation away from losing this whole thing. And the Bible said David viewed it in a generational way. The Bible said David died having served his own generation. So in other words, every one of us are obligated to do the work of ministry to our generation. In other words, I won't have to answer to people, to God, for people that die and go to hell after my generation. And I don't have to answer to God for people that are lost that are prior to my generation. But I will stand before God and give an account for how I communicated the gospel to my generation. Do you understand what I'm talking about? In a generational sense. So Mark here is recalling one of the stories that he was told. He didn't see this himself, but he wrote it down. Now, Mark is one of the oldest of the Gospels. It perhaps, after Matthew, was the next one that was written, and much of the other evangelists quote from Mark. He was so close to the action that people could tell him things that happened in Jesus' ministry, and he had good recall, and he was able to put that in this book. Others, he got it from the other evangelists. Now, we call them synoptic gospels because they tell the same story. But there are three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not one of the synoptic gospels. John is more about the deity of the Lord Jesus, that he is the son of the living God. And the Bible said, and whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, the same is born of God. So who Jesus is has everything to do with our foundation of Christianity, what we believe. And we have to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We have to believe that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the 14th verse of the first chapter of John says, and the word was made flesh and we beheld him as the only begotten of the father. We observed him. We came to know him to be as God in the flesh. He was 100% God and he was 100% man. So we then call him the God man. As man, he said, I thirst. But as God, he said, if any man shall drink of the water that I shall give him, he shall never thirst again. As a man, he stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and wept. But as God, he thundered, Lazarus, come forth. And he was resurrected. As man, he had earthly friends. And, but as God, he preached the message 
of redemption and the message of salvation because he as God was bearing himself in himself the sins of the whole world. And he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now, that became a focal point in a time period that we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Protestant Reformation is not about Mary. It's not about the Pope. It's about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's about what we believe about the Word of God. Now, up until that time, a Calvinistic approach was uh, in vogue. It was in practice. Calvinism states this, God created so many people to be saved, and they will hear the shepherd's voice, and they will come and be saved. They are the ones that Jesus was referring to, according to Calvinism. They, they, they are the ones thou hast given me. I have kept all that you have given to me, save one. You know who that one was? Judas Iscariot. And Jesus said, and he is a devil. The only person Jesus ever called a devil was Judas Iscariot. And he said, all the rest I have kept. Now, what that is informing some is that God intends some people to be saved and some not to be saved. Now, to believe that, you would have to believe that God sends people to hell, that God creates people who are bound for hell. I don't believe that. I believe that God makes people with free moral agency. That means they have the right of free choice. That means that sometime in their life, they will come to a crossroads. They will come to an encounter with the Lord Jesus. And if God has his way about it, they'll get saved. You say, you, you believe that everybody should be saved? That God God's purpose is that everybody should be saved? The Bible said it is not, in 1 Peter, it is not the will of God that any should perish. Well, that kills Calvinism right there. It is not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's will and God's desire is for everybody to be saved. But he won't force you to be saved, but he'll give you the opportunity to be saved. He will give you a fair representation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which informs you that you can have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. Give God some praise for that. But up until the Reformation, a Calvinistic approach was the approach of the church. And there was a monk, whose name was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther started studying. He was just a monk. A monk is a person that served in a monastery, a person that uh, spent his life writing scriptures down, a, a person that studied, a person that was uh, had access to the Word of God. The common man on the street did not have access to the Word of God. In other words, it was a priest that went to God for you and would come back and tell you what the word of the Lord is. Now, I'm thankful that that door has been open for every one of us, and we now have access into this grace. And thanks to the invention by Eli Whitney of the pr printing press, thanks be to God, we now have scriptures laying in all of these laps 
here in this room. And we thank God for that miracle and for that invention. It was all in line with God's providence. Amen. Because the Bible said in the last days, the gospel would be heard by everybody, by everybody on the earth. When this gospel shall be preached, Jesus said, to the ends of the earth, then the end will come. Oh, praise God. If you want Jesus to come, start preaching. If you want Jesus to come, get the word out. If you want Jesus to come back, then help somebody get the word to people that have never heard it before. Because, hallelujah, that's the only thing I know that's preventing the Lord from coming right now. Right now. So Martin Luther began to study and he began to see that being justified by faith was one of the titles attached to righteousness with God. That justification means it's a juridical term. That means it's a courtroom thing. A juridical term in that it is about evidence and it's about witness and it's about uh, presenting a, a premise and then presenting the evidence that proves it. So he read in Romans 5 and 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then this matter of salvation and being estranged from God and having the sin issue in our lives inherited from Adam, that that can be dealt with, and that can be eradicated, that debt can be paid, that sin can be atoned for, and Martin Luther is saying that can be achieved by grace through faith. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible said, For we are not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith. Just emphatically says that. And that's, Randy, what I believe about redemptive provision is that it comes by grace through faith. It is all of grace that it might be by faith. Hallelujah! Praise God! And somebody was trying to say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I'm not. I'm a child of God. I'm in the family of God. I'm born from above. Amen. I'm, I'm baptized in the spirit and baptized in the water too. I've had that double baptism. I, I've been baptized into Christ. Praise God. And I know who in whom I have believed that I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day, that night at, at that altar when I came to this encounter with Jesus. It was at that time that I committed it to Him. I, I unloaded myself of that sin debt and the burden of that sin. I cast it, Susan, all upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He bare our sorrows. He was made to be sin for us. He bore our iniquities on the cross. And the Bible tells us that he became the high priest of our profession of faith. He went one time, one time, one time, he offered himself. He didn't carry anything in there to kill and shed its blood. He himself, he himself bore our sins on the tree, the Bible says. 
himself. But this man, Hebrews 11, but this man hath once offered himself for the sins of the whole world forever. There will never be another Calvary. Boy, I've sung that so many times. There will never be another Calvary. The next time he comes, there won't be a Calvary. For the next time he comes, he will keep coming for me. Next time he comes, he'll be coming for me. So Jesus is very much about this business of ministering to people. And the Bible gives this account. It's in Mark 10, 13. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. That's a powerful verse. What does he mean about little children, and unless we become like them, we would nowise inherit the kingdom. What does he mean? The one thing that is so prominent in that, that thought is this, trust. Trust. You remember when you were a kid and you trusted your mama and trusted your daddy? You remember that you had so much trust you knew that they would care for your physical needs. They'd take care of your food, your clothing, and shelter, and they would take care of you. When you're a little child, if you got lost, first thing you thought of was, where's my mama? Where's my daddy? Brian used to love to get preoccupied with whatever he was fooling with, and most of the time it was an erector set or Legos or a G.I. Joe, and he'd get so involved in it, and sometimes I would just kind of step back from him, you know, a little bit. I was watching him all the time, and I'd see that look on his face when he'd look up and he'd look around, and he'd look to the right and he'd look to the left and he'd say, Daddy! 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 And I'd say, here I am. I'm right here. That trust that we have that's the basis upon what our relationship with God is, that we trust him. That we trust him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest. Upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him all and all. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace, 
trust him more. That grace, that's the trusting part of the Lord Jesus. Trust like a little child, like a little child. You know, if you could ever have that childlike faith, if you could ever achieve that childlike trust in God, brother, what a happy person you would be. You'd have a whole different worldview. You'd have a whole different outlook if you could just trust him. If you could just trust him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and ask him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Jesus took him right straight to the law. You know the law. You know the Decalogue. You know God's commandments. And he said, what commandments? And Jesus said, it's strange he said this one first, do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto Jesus, Master, all of these things have I observed from my youth. In his estimation, he was a pretty good person. In his own estimation of his own life, he was lacking nothing. He'd grown up in Hebrew society and in Jewish ways and worship. He'd had all of his youth and his teenage years and grown into his young adult status. And he said, I can't think of a one of those that I've ever broken. Well, that's good that it was in his justification or his estimation because the Bible said that no man can keep the law. It was not possible that people could keep the law. There was not a possibility that you could live your whole life without breaking that law sometime or another. And the Bible said that all who attempt to do that... For in the righteousness and the law, all men perish, the Bible says. And in fact, the law, listen to this, what it says in Romans chapter 8. He says that they that are of the flesh cannot please God. And he says that the law could not do, in that what the law could not do. The law could never get you forgiveness of sin. The law could never give you peace in your heart and in your soul. The law could never satisfy that longing in your heart. The law could never accomplish in you what it is on the page. In other words, compared to the law, the Bible said all flesh perisheth. It's just not possible in that what the law could not do. Why? In that it was weak through the flesh. There was no provision there to help you not sin. There was nothing in your heart, any inspiration in your life to help you live 
according to that Decalogue. And the Bible just says you can't do it. You just couldn't do it. And that what the law could not do. So this man is testifying to Jesus that in his estimation he did it. But Jesus knew his heart and knew that wasn't possible. What, what commandments are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus enumerated them. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? In other words, how can there be any more than what I have already trusted in? All my life I've trusted in works righteousness. All of my life I have depended upon doing and not believing. Works and not grace. It's what I do, not what Jesus did. Are you following me here? So he is saying to Jesus, all of these, and Jesus says to him, one thing lackest thou yet. One thing. My Lord, you mean one thing can keep you out of heaven? I didn't say it, Jesus did. One thing lackest thou yet. And Jesus knew exactly where his belief system was what he trusted in. I said what he trusted in. I said what he worshipped and trusted in. And Jesus said, Go and sell that that thou hast. Give it to poor people. And come and take up the cross and follow thee. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. There hadn't been a cross yet. Wait a minute, Pastor. Jesus is doing the talking, so he's not dead. And they've not yet beat his back. And they've not yet plucked out his beard. And they've not yet smitten his face. They've not yet put the spear in his side and pierced that precious side. They've not put that crown of thorns on him yet. They've not marched him through the city bearing his cross. How did Jesus propose to this man who was looking for eternal life to take up his cross? And Jesus there first introduces to us cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Now, cross-bearing is not burden-bearing. The Bible says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Anybody come today with burdens? Might as well lift your hand up. Everybody's voting for that. Bring any burdens to church with you today? Any hurt? Any disappointment? Any sorrow? Any lack? Any need? What did you come for this encounter with God for? What did you bring to this meeting with God today? Well, brother, I've got burdens. Buddy, I, I sent somebody a text. And I said, buddy, this is a week from Hades. First thing, all the rain and, and Bentley went in there. They were staying with us. He said, Papa, water's running down my wall. 
I said, what? I went in there and water just streaming down the wall. Had a new roof put on the place about three years ago. But instead of putting new tin, valley tin, they, some workers just said, uh, we're not going to do that. We'll get paid anyway. Nobody's going to know. So uh, we, just, we won't replace the tin. That's another message for another time. Do it right is the name of it. So I had to scour around and, and get that fixed. Well, then the next thing that happened was the food disposal quit and locked up and wouldn't run. So I had to go, Randy, over to Lowe's and get an insincorator and wrestle up under that sink, putting that, holding that thing up there. Y'all ever done that? Well, that's a burden. And you got to hold it there. It weighs about 60 pounds. Hold that thing there, Rocky, and get that ring up there to slip just right to lock that thing in place. Took me three hours. Then I felt something hot. I said, what in the world's matter? What's going on here? So I went out and looked at the units, and they were blowing hot air out. And I said, well, they must be running. And, uh, but it got hot in there. Boy spent a sleepless night without air. 103. Sabra, yo, yo Sabra. Well, next thing happens, the motor quits in the golf cart. It won't run, Donna. You don't even know about that. Since I saw you last, it quit. And I just went and left to come over here, went in there in the refrigerator, Food was hot in it. You want me to go on or do you get the point? Brother, ev let me just say it this way. Everything I got is broke. So I come to church today with a lot of burdens. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you'll trust and never doubt, he will surely bring you out. Take your burden to the Lord and leave, and leave. You gotta leave it there. Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. And he answered unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth up. And then a strange verse. Look at 21. And then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. What? This guy is looking for eternal life. Why do you think Jesus loved the rich young ruler? We don't know his name. Everybody conjectures about who he was, and they've assigned everything from Joseph of Arimathea to Nicodemus, and the list just goes on. We don't know who he was, and it's fruitless to try to find out because the Bible just simply said he's a rich, young ruler. In other words, he's best known by the description of him. 
His name is not near as important as what he does. Knowing his given name is not nearly as important as how he lives. How he lives. One thing we find out, he's rich. He's got plenty of money. He's got houses and he's got lands. And he's very much blessed. He's very rich and very wealthy. But spiritually, he's bankrupt. What are you talking about, Pastor? If a man should gain the whole world and lose his soul, what does it profit? What does it profit if a man should gain the whole world and then lose his soul? Brother, if you had all the money, all the gold in Fort Knox and the places where they store it at West Point, if you had all the lands and all, if you own New York City and you own San Francisco and you own Los Angeles, I'd sell them. And you own New Orleans and you own Chicago and you own uh, Italy and you own France and you own Spain and you own Great Britain and own everything. But if you're lost and you don't know Jesus, the Bible says you're naked and you're hungry and you're impoverished. If you don't have Jesus. You know why Jesus loved him so much? Stan, it was because he was an Israelite that came to Jesus to inherit eternal life. That made Jesus so happy. That made Jesus so glad. He loved it. He loved it that finally an Israelite got it. He was elated and joyful because finally a Jewish person had come to Jesus to find eternal life. And Jesus said, go and sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Come and take up the cross and follow me. In other words, discipleship. Well, what about these people, Brother Jerry, that in vacation Bible school, they walk up and uh, say that they want to give their life to Jesus. And then they live their whole life in resistance to the gospel, never never attend, never give, never do anything more about their, their faith. Now, some of my people who believe in eternal security would say, well, they never was saved to begin with. Well, now, I'm gonna let, not going to let you play God and tell me who gets saved and who don't. Because when we get up there, there are some that are going to be there that you didn't think would make it. And you're going to be looking for some that you thought was a shoe-in that didn't make it. Jesus said on that day, many shall come to me and cry, Lord, Lord, I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I knew about you, but I never knew you. And greater still is, you never knew me. Well, that's a sermon if I'd ever preached another word. Then the Bible said there was a response then. All about goodness. Goodness. You know, goodness, when Jesus said, there's none good but one, don't look for goodness in me. Some skeptics and some people that would like to smear the Christological claims of the Lord Jesus 
which say there he says it himself. There is none good but one, and that's God. He was dismissing anything, any goodness about him. That's a wrong interpretation of that scripture. What it is really saying is you're comparing the wrong thing to the wrong thing. Because if, if we were going to talk about goodness, you know how we do that? We compare ourselves with one another. We compare ourselves with other things and other people. We even, we even say if a dog comes around and licks you on the leg and stays by you and loves on you, we'll say, he's a good dog. If one lady cooks a good meal and you like it, you say, she's a good cook. He's a good man. She's a good woman. She's a good wife. He's a good husband. They're good children. I've had good children. Good by what standard? What are you comparing them to? Everybody else's kids? What Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler, stop comparing yourself to other people and compare yourself to God. There's none to compare yourself with, Jesus says, except God. Woo! Oh, that's good stuff. There's no blessing in comparing yourself to others. Compare yourself to what God has for you and what God wants you to be. That's where you can determine what's good. And we know that the Bible talks about good works. But they follow redemption. They don't preclude redemption. They're after you're saved, not before you're saved. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now what brings glory to God in heaven through my activities here on the earth? If I am a good representative of faith in Jesus, if I am a good model of what it is to know and love and serve and worship Jesus. Then he said that's a testimony. It's how a, a converted wife gets help in saving an unconverted husband. The word said sanctifies. Boy, that's a strong word, isn't it? But listen to what the Bible says about this situation and goodness. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now the key word right there, come on Olivia, the key word right there is sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. The word that the King James translators translated sorrowful, the Greek word is much more powerful than that. The Greek word in the original manuscript it says devastated you would say blown away completely and totally distraught disheveled anguish anxiety he went away devastated he went away destroyed he went away anxious why? Because Jesus had rightly interpreted his heart. Jesus realized where his worship was and his trust was. 
And Jesus just simply said, come and follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus was asking him to exchange treasures. Exchange your treasure on earth for treasure in heaven. Now, boy, that's going to take some trust, isn't it? That's going to take some real faith to do it that way. To do it that way. But that's what Jesus was saying to him. It's what Jesus is saying to every one of us. Let me get over here to the last page. That's just one there. I never get to preach all the whole sermon, do I? When God saves, he completely saves. Jesus is standing at your heart's door. Standing and knocking, he's knocked before. This is the question you face once more. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Stand with me, please, all over the house. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this old world affords today. Than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this old world affords today. The worst thing that can happen to you is to walk away sorrowful. And that long line of people that are standing at judgment. If we were to interview some of the people in that line, the Bible said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That long line they call the white throne judgment. That's a people that never accepted the invitation of Jesus. Not for you if you're saved, that's not for you. But the people in that line will be lost. If we interviewed somebody, do you see anybody in that line? Oh, look right over there. That, that's that guy they call rich, young ruler. Sir, sir, we'd like to interview you. You had a lot of money in your former life, didn't you? Yes. You had a lot of houses and lands and servants. You lived very, very good, didn't you? Yes, I did. What is the most regrettable thing that you ever did in your life? And he would look you in the eye and say, the day I walked away and said no to Jesus. I could pray a benediction today about the all-wise God and the omnipotent one, but I'll just pray it this way. God help us. 
never to walk away from Jesus. God, as we depart this place of worship, I pray that we will become a testimony of your grace and your salvation. I pray, O oh Lord, that every one of us in this house today will leave this place with confidence, knowing that the blood avails and knowing that the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross is upon our hearts and our lives. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. Go with us now and bring us back together without the loss of a person. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.